0: Please.
1: Bootsy here to bring the Truth and Rhythm family's attention to funk, not fight. Yeah, this is a call to action. We spread hope, not hate, uh, to gain satisfaction throughout our communities via the music uplifting unity. Uh, Peppermint
0: Patty, tell us a little more. Thinker is our partner. Think or music, that is. So please check the link that's scrolling across the bottom, click it, and submit your music. Let's all funk, funk not, not fight.
1: fight. Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also, become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon. Or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. The yeah. Quincy thread also ran through with, I want to mention a couple more of those because they were important records sure. too. George Benson, Give Me the Night, yeah. and uh, Heatwave um, candles. Uh, it was toward the end of Heatwave's run, but still.
0: Which is Rod, you know, Rod yeah. started Heatwave with the two brothers and, uh, you know, just. Those records, you know, it's just hard to explain how. But I've done some podcasts too about Quincy, Quincy's influence, and what that was like with some of the people that were there. Even uh, trying to explain what a great producer does because it's kind of mystical and magical. But he made everybody. It was first of all it was a party without being, but it was deadly serious. I mean, it was it was as much fun as you could have with your clothes on all the time, I'm going to say with Quincy. Not so with some of the sessions that were sideways, but, you know, completely fun, completely inspired, completely music-based, but clowning and all that, you know, we... We had a thing especially at the horn section but just just those group of session guys in general we just we gave each other a lot of shit, you know and it was it was very good natured in that it wasn't meant to bully or belittle people i don't think you know it's some of it has got a little on the edge <laughs> about somebody's weakness because you're you're you know you're on top of each other breathing together and, and you get to know each other very well after 12 hours in a studio with headphones on and you're talking to each other and, and you know, you're fucking up together. You're, you're also making great stuff together. And it's just it, it, what Quincy created in an atmosphere was this vibe of go for it. The most you can do, you, you, I, I'm here for, you know, and just you want to try something? Anything you want to try. He was open for it. Wasn't was never looking at the clock. Even when there was I knew deadlines were on top of him, you know, just never gave that vibe. It was like, I and you know, you'd look up there and uh Nelson Mandela may walk in, or uh Naomi Campbell, or just just you know, anybody who oprah broad show up. Uh, just it could be anybody in the fucking whole world, not politicians. I mean, he was he ran in. Talk about Forrest Gump, Quincy. You know, it's just like, just a truly an amazing guy on so many levels, you know. And uh, nobody's nobody's ever like, well, I, that I got to work with, you know. Arif Martin had a particularly wonderful thing too that was very Quincy-like in a lot of ways. And and being a master musician didn't help. It didn't hurt, you know. But Arif was a master arranger. Uh, it's a lot of those what, atlantic what, records
1: i know shaka khan too i think some with yeah.
0: yeah and that's in fact that's that that um what you're going to do for me record in 81 i believe was i got a call you know he probably pretty sure quincy told him he was looking for a keyboard player and quincy said you know i don't know if he hired me yet to play horns on it but i ended up doing all the horn arranging all the synth parts of course all the roads in the tracking it was steve ferroni anthony jackson uh hamish stewart um mark Stevens, shaka's brother and, and shaka you know and i really i had met shaka before from the earlier rufus records we we did as a horn section but you know got getting to live with her in Montreux for three months you know they they we went over to Montreux studios to, to the mountain recording there. The, the thing was to get Shaka out of, out of LA. So thinking she'd be on her best behavior, you know, which, which she pretty much was. Uh, we weren't all that much on our best behavior, but she was pretty good. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Cause Arif was like, like so paternal in the best way. He, he was just so patient and inspiring. I mean, and no, no ego, and just about the music. And now have fun, young young man. But don't you know, just take it easy. Leave some for coming in to recording. He could see when one of us was a little green from the night before, hanging out too late, you know. But it was a pretty relaxed uh, bunch of sessions living there in, in Switzerland, you know, and uh, in this picturesque right on the lake. You
1: know, would yeah. it be common for you to get uh, hired or brought in for a particular uh, purpose, you know, say it was a horn or a keyboard, and then maybe along the way, they would find out you had some other kind of you know capability and, and you would add something else?
0: I wouldn't necessarily say common, but it did happen more than a few times when I when I did the uh, Eric Clapton August record that Phil Collins produced. Uh, Greg Fillinganes was the keyboard player. Uh, great, great Quincy. He was the meat and potatoes, and I say that in the best possible way. He was the Rhodes piano guy that Quincy, you know, wanted in the rhythm section. And he did, you know, the vast majority of Quincy's stuff after Foster had done a lot of stuff early and other people had, had played piano for Quincy, certainly, and did later. But Greg became his guy. Greg hired me to program since, because he wasn't too much into the programming part. He was a um, uh, synth, so I came in. I just brought my rig in, and and Greg played my my rig. And at one point, Greg says to Eric and uh, and Phil and Tom Dowd, the other producer, "Hey, Larry's great saxophone player. Why don't you have him play solo on this? Because you said you needed a sax solo." So I go out. I, I I guess I brought it the next day. I don't actually remember. I because we were there like ten days or something doing all the the parts on that um, overdubbing. Greg. So I go out and play a solo. Eric loved it. And this is this is a says something about um, about, uh, about Eric Clapton. What a, what a class guy he is. Uh, my lawyer. At the time, C-Win's lawyer was his his lawyer in the U.S. happened to be, um, and some months later, my lawyer calls me and says, "Hey, I was in Japan and Eric uh, came off stage after this concert, and he said he was like really upset because they took your solo off the record. And he said he told me he wanted to tell you, to, he wanted you to know that he preferred your solo, but my they used they." Tom Dowd and I guess Phil Collins brought in Michael Brecker. And so I was replaced by Michael Brecker, which to me is like the biggest honor in the world. That's my hero, you know. Um, and I got to play and know, play with and know Michael a bit. Just just still idolize him to this day, and I'm learning more about him. But that that was my one solo. Outside the box on that record got taken off by Michael Brecker, which to me again, is an honor. If you haven't been replaced, we've all been replaced. You know, some of my best stuff has been replaced. I don't even remember the solo, but and I, I'll just tell you one quick story. I got a call from Gino Vanelli, his people, and they said, that we want you to do a solo on, uh, on a, and on and I'd heard these stories about Gino being like beyond you know exacting and demanding and you know pretty difficult like to please and i'd heard i i, I asked the person i said well uh this is well am i the first guy coming in he said no you're actually about 27th and i said you know what i'm gonna pass why don't you just get michael brecker and, I, and that was they did and they didn't use michael either i think he, he liked ernie Watson. ernie had done a big uh, solo of his and I think that's who ended up playing it I'm not really sure but I just said uh, I don't want to I don't want to get into that you in know <laughs> you know they would have paid me and I, I could have walked out and hey, who knows I could have played a great solo wasn't like but I just said just just get the world's finest saxophone player who did to this day that's, that's what I think of the playing of the saxophone Michael Brecker Stylistically, you know, you can say there's other guys that do other things, but just he took the saxophone to the next level beyond Coltrane. For for most of us players, it's inarguable. But um, (laughs) so usually I was hired for a specific thing. And Scott, to be honest, a lot of people didn't know that I played other instruments. They just knew me from one thing they heard on a record. And they and, and and that's okay. I didn't have to educate them. I sometimes, like I said, people wouldn't maybe take you seriously if they thought, oh, he's playing." He, but he, but he plays good on that. He can't be very good on that instrument because there weren't, weren't a lot of us multi. You know, my friend Peter Weller calls me a polymath, and I have to look it up. But um, someone who's, who's who's a master of, of many. And, you know, that, that's what I set out to do. It's, it's hard for me to this day to keep up with all of it. Uh, I'll I'll be quite honest with you. I've let the clarinet go. I keep the flute and the saxophone and, and my piano chops are okay. You know, I'm not at the highest level like I was, but you know, I'm still playing and active and recording. I'm recording a horn chart right now for uh, Jason chef. Who's a, was with Chicago for 20 years, a lead singer, bass player. And, uh, He's, he's actually got some old studio guys on there. Steve Ferroni from the Shaka stuff and Quincy and Michael. Average Lamartian. white band. Yeah. Average white man. Michael Lamardian, who played on uh, a lot of Al stuff and a lot of Jackson stuff too. So, you know, the guys of us that did it, we're, we're, we're kind of lifers is the way I look at it. I mean, it's like, even though the recording business it's it's hardly a business in some ways anymore because a lot of people records aren't making a lot of money these days a lot of records aren't so
1: well Larry, the ones
0: that are yeah go ahead
1: yeah you mentioned uh, George Duke of course and you kind of uh, replaced him on the Blam record but you also worked with George Duke quite a bit and i know you did the uh, follow the rainbow uh which was a you know great i mean he was in a great funk groove at that time for sure um was it wasn't like actually uh, working with him? I've heard nothing but just glowing things about George, Duke.
0: I heartily concur, George. George was a trying to trying to remember the sequence of events. So I've been listening to George in Hawaii, "The Aura Aura Will Prevail" on Bassif Records, and I'm going. How the hell does he get this synthesizer to do that? Because I got my first synthesizer, which was an ARP, ARP Odyssey. And I knew George played one. It was part of the reason I got it, you know, because I hadn't really heard Jan Hammer yet in the Moog. The Moog thing was not quite there. And I, so I'm trying to get out of it what he's getting out of it. You get to L.A., and i don't remember what was the first session but it was a george record i'm pretty sure where he called us in to do horns and one of the early ones was the his record um his brazil record which i won't remember the name of right now which was just a beautiful piece of work he went to brazilian love
1: affair is that brazilian
0: love affair he went to rio and he got all the cats there and did it and brought it up and some of those horn parts are are tremendous he wrote and uh, Jerry's got a beautiful solo on there on, on this breezing, Uh Summer Breezin I think no Breezin it's just Summer Breezin I think is the name of the one of them uh, getting to work with George was like you know I mean I had followed his Zappa stuff closely Everything he did is singing. The guy was the nicest guy and funny. Made the strongest coffee. It's a serious groove going on. Well, I'm going, wow, for him to call us. I mean, it's like, you know, Quincy is the same thing. It was like, oh, wow. We're we're okay. We're, we're really able to be on that level because you don't really know, you know. You don't really know. You think, wow, well, this sounds pretty good, but I mean, this is our heroes calling us, right? I mean, I've been listening to Quincy's, you know, Jerry and I listened to that <laughs> in Indiana. To the, Quincy's, I'm trying to remember the one with uh, Walking in Space, Listen to that. We just wore that thing out. So getting to play on a Quincy record. But George, uh, the greatest guy, and then, of course, Seawind asked him to produce us, which he did. Produced a, a, a record, our Our third and final record, uh, which was just, you know, having George produce us, was like, and he let us be us, you know, he didn't force us into any boxes and going to his house and his studio, playing, you know, like I'm playing piano for George Duke, you know, on a movie record. It was like, it was kind of, my, it was very mind blowing. He came to my wedding, you know, he and his wife Corinne, so we became... We became good friends, I, I, I would say. And it was really, really a big loss when, when we lost George, you know. Because nobody like that, exi- really, that lived in that space, that parliament, you know. I mean, here's Cannibal Adderley played pianos. He had all that stuff, all the jazz tradition. He had the gospel side. You know, he and Al Jarreau were close. And then and then he had all this pop symphony stuff which he did a symphony before he passed you know i mean the guy is the guy was i sit watch him sit down and play first take on something it's just pretty pretty magical it's like i aspire to that you know so
1: i i want, wanted to also mention you know i know uh in the late 70s you worked with some of the uh japanese uh, jazz artists and uh, you know that was a very interesting phenomenon i thought around that time and i think over the years more people have become aware of it but just that kinship between the american jazz fusion movement and some of the japanese artists and some of the great music that was done then in a lot of cases was only released at least for a time in japan
0: it Was really interesting you're you're right on there it's a strange it's not strange when I look back, but somebody could do a whole you know, sociological experiment about that at the time um in nineteen seventy eight so I guess we had had our first semen record out played on a couple of things. We got a call I don't remember who it was through got to our manager or whatever for to go be the backup band for a singer in Japan, Kimiko Kasai, who was the first singer who sang in English out of Japan, uh, who sang jazz, my understanding, or at least one of the very early, and she was on a Gil Evans record, I believe, or Gil did a record of her, I don't, I don't quite know. Really lovely girl, a, a good singer, um, and the deal was 28-day tour, 27 tour dates, and on our day off, I remember this, we all remember it, on our day off, we made a full record with a Toshioko, Toshiko, Toshioko Honda, whose dad was a big, was the the jazz journalist, kind of like Leonard Feather was in the 70s and 80s and 60s in, in L.A. We made a complete record, all the tracks on rhythm section and all the horn parts. So I about 15 hours on our day off. I remember drinking a lot of sake that night and not much about and getting on the train to the next gig all through Japan. So, I mean, talk about I'm 28 in Japan going to these cities. You know, we went to a city up north where our road manager, Blue Johnson, had a big afro. We were walking down the street and people had only seen a black man on t v and they came out of this of their houses and they were all the kids wanted to touch his afro and it's just you can't make this stuff up so it I probably have been to Japan sixty or seventy times they would people would bring me they because this is my understanding, and a Japanese person might tell me I'm crazy oh, I have good friends in Japan, so I think I'm not far off Japanese people really pay attention to liner notes. And they buy records based, at least back then when there were liner notes, based on who was on there. And it, so in, in Europe, too, and, and a lot of people in the U.S. did, not just musicians like myself. I mean, if I saw Michael Brecker on a record, I, I'm buying that record. I don't care what it's on. It's, you know, um, it just makes any difference what it is. want um, to hear what he brought to that. And they would... And so they, they become a, like a, a relationship there with, with, with a segment of people that knew my music and it people, you know, the musicians, of course, we wanted me on stuff and wanted our horn section. And so we did, we did a ton of records, you know, here and, and in Japan. And we toured with some Japanese Jerry and I did, did a tour with some, some people. And, uh, and and what's really interesting scott is when we went over there there were some imitations of the best of jazz they were and not they hadn't got their own voice at all they were just they were really at the imitative stage there was one guitar player who turned out who's still great kazumi watanabe who's a, a master unto himself he had his own kind of style but everybody else was kind of a pale imitation of they just hadn't had a generation of they they liked it but they they couldn't couldn't quite and then within however many 10 or 15 years it exploded to where there's you know it's become an international you can be anywhere especially with the internet but they my my take was that Japan always like singled out they wanted the best of the best whether it was French pastries they just get the chef at the best thing and show them how to make it and they'd copy that nail it move on you know and and th- from all around the world and they their economy was booming and they had they were paying the top dollar to have us over there you know and it, so it was a real honor i really enjoy to this day the japanese people and so much about their culture you know it's just and the, the the politeness and uh and the respect and they and you're treated like an artist you know so
1: I, I gotta share with you larry i was in japan once about uh 10 or 15 years ago it's hard to remember now but that was my only time there and i'm a big guy and and walking through japan in tokyo uh some of the young guys would come up to me and they'd go oh so big and they would like reach out and like fill my bicep and that kind of thing like you how were saying about was
0: this? how long ago is this like fifteen years ago, even fifteen years ago, uh, yeah. I'm am a little shocked because in the in the seventies, the late seventies, walking down the street as a white guy was even you'd get a lot of looks, you know. And um, well, I'm 6'3", it, so I was towering. Oh in, yeah, you know. we were towering. Well, we were towering too, and I'm five eleven. <laughs> now you know, with diets and stuff changing, not not so much, you know the The culmination by the way of not I, yeah, it was for me was I had a long relationship with one producer there his name was was eighty eight after the keys, I guess I don't even think he was a keyboard player. he was a producer, but I probably did forty records for him, mostly in in l a and he was a big guy at Sony that just loved jazz and loved he just you know he'd do anything to and he built their their latest he, he's since passed but he built uh, their big studio complex and he he gave me a record deal that's my only solo record Larry Williams and Friends The Beautiful Struggle that's the one solo deal I did because they they I knew they let me do whatever I wanted to get the whoever I wanted and produce it and uh, and they paid me handsomely to do my own record and I did a tour behind it with with Pauline singing and Dave Carpenter on bass, um, Vinny Coliota, great drummer, was the drummer, but he didn't do the tour with me. He was not available. He was a Sting. He chose Sting instead of me.
1: What what year was that record about?
0: That year record was about two thousand three, two somewhere in there.
1: Yeah, did you ever consider or think about doing other records under your
0: name? You know. It's an interesting question, Scott, because I some I have periods where I question it every day, and I don't have a huge burning desire to have my name out there with my. This is my music. I, I never have. I mean, Sea Wind scratched a lot of that itch for me. It was like because I wrote some of the stuff and a You know, was involved in in all of that. Of course, um, I. After so many years of making my way, my life, my living, my livelihood, my career as a studio guy for hire, it's like to to be, especially the last several years, where nobody's coming up and saying, here's some money to make a record. You know, It's like the impetus for me, I've got all kinds of music here that I can play for my friends and for myself, for my NFL. I don't have to put it out into the universe with the rest of it. Glad of stuff to to say this is me i don't i just don't have that huge burning desire that a lot of people do i'm not a natural songwriter in terms of i get up every day and write a song stuff it's just not been my i've concentrated on being the player the arranger you know i love being the puzzle making the puzzle work for an arrangement like what i'm doing now for this horn horn project you know well horn project it's a one section for, for Jason, chef, but
1: what, uh, one or two projects would you say that you're most proud of and why?
0: Well, I think that's shock. Uh, what you're going to do for me be, because I was, except for night in Tunisia, which is a great fucking track. That's David Foster. Ronnie Foster did the keyboards and Herbie, <laughs> Herbie Hancock. Um, and We Can Work It Out, where I did the horns. That's great film games on synth bass. I'm playing all the other keyboards, pretty much, that I can remember. And all the horns is just Jerry and I. There is a couple of tracks of Breckers on there that Arif brought in with Brecker Brothers and some other guys in New York, I think, on the title track, What You Gonna Do For Me. So because, because I got to do all of it, All the keyboards the overdubbing of keys the horn arrangements and into working with a reef and and the outcome of that it still sounds pretty fresh to me when i listen to that record and i go wow that's kind of that that's one of them i would say that that people would know i mean there's some there's things like where i did a horn stuff the horn track horn arrangement and played in the section with uh, for Aretha. Hold on, I'm coming, which is just a one-off track. Or I played clarinet on the wall, the last song on the wall, uh, Pink Floyd. Um, you know that are that are just weird. I was also the first saxophone player on uh, The Simpsons, Marge Simpson. And after they did the orchestral session, I got a call to go up and replace the guy that did it in the that did it live, and so. I don't think I lasted all that long, like months, maybe or maybe for a season. I don't really know. Danny Elfman I worked with him, just playing a couple of Lisa boops and blops, you know. Before it was a baritone, um, just. But as far as projects go, I mean, certainly one of the Sea Wind records, or you know, maybe the first Sea Wind record, because that that kind of put us on on the map. Um and I guess I guess the one other would be the Jarreau that has Spain on it this time. And as Spain and Alonzo are two synthesizer solos I did on the Moog, that well moog and prophet five that have become quite transcribed and musicians recognize me from that. You know, they that's sort of a, the other calling card on. On Keys, there's that one, and then on saxophone, it's the it's the Prince, Sheila E. Um, record. It's so hard to, to, there's other ones that people don't even know about. I mean, I am quite proud of that Brothers Johnson. I've listened to it, my Blam record, listened to it recently, and I think it holds up. Like you say, R&B is like, I mean, what is R&B and funk? You know and and what how do you even define what that is i mean it's not really important i don't i don't really care about the classifications and i'll say one other record i'm going to throw in just because of the international stuff we've done a lot of stuff for africans for mori conte who's an amazing african uh, uh Mali, guy out of Mali uh, who plays the kora at the stringed instrument um I've been to Brazil a lot and played with Brazilian musicians and produced Ivan, I-V-A-N, Lins, L-I-N-S. He's like a Brazilian national treasure. And I've got to produce two records with him with Stuart Levine and go to Brazil. And I've I've been to Brazil 10 or 15 times. And recently I've gone down and played with Brazilian musicians. And so to me, that's like a a real kick to, to get to play that music, which, you know, is like it's just joy. It's pure joy, and I'm I'm like I'm learning every time I play there. Uh, the first time I went to Brazil was in 1984. And this I would, CBS uh, brought me down there, CBS Brazil, because I was I was working with Ronnie Foster, the great keyboard player, with a guy named Javon who had a big hit record, and and I helped Ronnie do some of the arrangements because Ronnie didn't read or write music. Great great keyboard player with George Benson and many others. Ronnie Foster, great funk. Good Stevie, played with Stevie for years. So I had this hookup and I go down and I work with all Brazilian musicians. Some of them don't speak very good English. And I did all the arrangements, the, the keyboards, the, the, the string arrangements, the horn arrangements in about 12 days because my wife was pregnant at the time. And I, I do an interview with a Brazilian journalist, music journalist. And his first question was, "How do you deign to come down here and play with the world's greatest musicians?" And I said, "Well, I can't really answer that. You'll have to ask them." But when I got off the plane, they—I went to the studio, and they were all watching, listening to, and watching a TV show of us playing with Al Jarreau and of me playing. uh uh, on the the uh (laughs) of the algebra of spade they were listening to all the stuff we did with quincy and and michael jackson so you know the way i look at it is if you want to his point was he wanted to keep brazilian music pure i said you want to keep it pure have your museum keep it because musicians We're not about purity, man. We're gonna get together and fuck that shit up. We're gonna, we're gonna do it sideways. And I'm gonna and I take what we're learning from each other. And I've learned so much doing this record with these guys in in Brazil. The power went out about every other hour. And you'd sit around and talk to each other, you know, bass player would show up five hours late, and that's just Brazilian style, you know, at the time. it's a little better now, (laughs) but it was, it was charming. You know, it was like in in another way, exasperating, but you know, it's just what a culture, you know, it's like, yeah, everything doesn't run like the U S and it's, it's beautiful. You know, just got to go with it.
1: (laughs) Wow, man. You're quite a world traveler. No doubt about that. Um...
0: Uh, It's been music's (laughs) taken me all around the world several times.
1: A couple other projects have popped in mind that I just want to touch on before we part ways. Uh, one is um, Pleasure. You uh, did some work with them.
0: Do you recall that? Oh, that's funny. I, somebody brought that up recently. I, I do, because it was up at Fantasy Studios, and they brought us in to do horns. And really nice guys. And I, until really recently, I didn't really understand. I didn't hear. I don't think I'd heard a lot of their stuff. I heard the tracks we played on did some mind-bending stuff back then. They didn't get their due at all. A
1: Wayne Henderson uh, protégé group.
0: That, that's right. That's right. That, uh, there was some, some horns that were added. One of the trombone players' name was Clay Toven, which I love because he was the arranger. Um And I just remember that producer and uh, 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 engineer was the son of, gosh, maybe the owner of Fantasy. He's a good engineer. Um. Anyway, I remember thinking this is this is some serious funk, and and these guys are great. And yeah, I've heard I heard a track recently, and I went, "That was they were they were killing." I mean, that was was really involved stuff. Very and and interesting, right? For this is late seventies, right? Mid seventies.
1: They were bringing some rock and some jazz to yeah. it you know
0: yeah yeah it's kind of like cameo on except more more out you know more more really fine musicianship
1: yeah part on. of the reason part of the reason with they the didn't, funk. part of the reason they didn't hit maybe as big as they could have was because they were a little you know different but yeah yeah, yeah. um and then the other one was uh just you know the guys from the crusaders i know you worked with sticks oh, you man. mentioned joe sample and you know, I had sticks on a while back. It was such an honor. I've been such a fan my whole life of the Crusaders. Yeah. So, um, you know, what can you tell us about those guys?
0: So, of course, like everybody, when I'm listening to the Jazz Crusaders and going, you know, all oh, these guys are, it's just like, it's kind of unusual. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of, I mean, I, I, it was funky as shit. Um, and the solos are like and I, then I then I go wow the guy Wilton Felder's the bass player and he's playing tenor like that that Texas tenor tone I mean that, that Wilton had you know to get I got to know Joe early on at the baked potato and Joe hired would hire me to come in and play synthesizer with him or 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 to you know record his MIDI or something or it was really an honor to to play with Joe and get to know, him. And to play on those records. Spellbound—that's a great record. That was the first record I did at my studio. This this same console was a, was I've kept all these years. Analog. Uh, Tommy LaPuma produced another great producer. Probably the guy I worked did the most records for, other than Quincy. They hired us to play on a Crusaders record. Our Jerry and me and Kim to be horns on their record it was just like holy shit. I mean, it's a Crusaders record those guys fought like brothers. I mean, it was so fucking funny that it in one sense, and they could be really exact exasperating too, fighting over, over what the groove should be like. And they're all brilliant sticks. You know, Wilton would have that. would have a certain idea about the groove. Very specific. And Joe would be, oh, whoa, 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 Wilton, you know, and he'd drive that stutter. And, and I say that just so lovingly. Cause Joe was, I toured with Joe warmed up Al Jarrell for many years and was on the road with us, you know, and I was with Al's band and Joe would have a trio and play with just what a what a pianist I I really got to learn a lot about piano from and the history of jazz piano and stride piano because Joe was into all that. I mean, it just makes me so grateful that I got to work with all these people that I that were heroes, you know. Uh, we met them by the way in Hawaii, like like so many people we ended up working with. They came there for a concert. I'll never forget it. The concert was Bill Evans trio in front of the Crusaders. And Bill was pretty high, played his ass off horse, which he could do high. And the Crusaders were. Uh, Larry Carlton was on guitar, and he was probably twenty-three or five or something, uh, maybe, maybe twenty-six. But he was young. I'm thinking, wow, this this these guys are funky as shit. So there were so many that came, and we we warmed up Deodata. We warmed up uh, them Tower of Power. Heard weather report there. We didn't warm them up. They didn't need any warm up. Weather report when it was Miroslav Vito and Vito's on bass and you know the first incarnation of that band. Um, Different drummer, but I mean heroes. Well,
1: and you went on to work with uh, Larry Carlton also and Lee
0: Ridenauer and yeah, Lee had a long association from those. Baked potato days. I toured with Lee playing saxophone and keys at, diff- at different times, or both. You know, just he—he he knew he could get for the price of one. He get—he get, he'd get to—he get me to do synths and sax solos, and you know, he—he he was. I, I you look at Lee's. Lee's uh, introduced me to well, that was Dave Grusin, who was another hero of mine, who I got to tour with that and, and play that chair, the keys, and. Said, there's a video there that that uh, has gotten a lot of view among musicians with with Lee and the band is Abraham laborial, Carlos Vega, the late great, Dave Grusin, me and Lee is the core band, and it's Dave Valentine, Yvonne Linz, the singer I told you about, and um uh, Diane Shore, the other ones and and we toured with that. That lineup we did JVC Jazz Festivals all through the U.S. mostly. Yeah, it would be in Europe too. We did Nice Nice Jazz Festival when Miles was on it. So what a what a kick! I mean, Dave Grusin hired me to play on his movies based on hearing me at the Baked Potato, you know, play a flute solo on, on Justice for All. Um, in fact, Jerome the great Jerome Richardson, who was wonderful lead alto. And, Bit of a curmudgeon, but he was not happy that a twenty-six-year-old guy, Jay Dave, said, "No, have Larry play the flute solo." He wanted to. He wanted to out, you know. And he knew I could. He'd heard me play it on on a scene where the helicopter takes off and and Justice for All that movie,
1: the Al Pacino movie. Yeah, yeah, great flick. I love that one. Great
0: flick. Yeah. Well,
1: before I let you go, um, what are you working on right now that people should know about? And you know, is there anything people yeah. should <laughs> look out for or
0: have on the radar or? Um, You know what? I'm, I'm always writing stuff these days with, with a singer songwriter, wonderful musician named Randy Goodrum. And we actually have a record that we co-produced. It's called Randy Goodrum red eye that's out on his label and it's available everywhere. Um, That, and I'll just say, we're going to be doing some more stuff. I don't know exactly when, and in what form it'll take but if on randy's website it'll be there the core band of this record is is randy and i keyboard saxophone all that stuff some drum programming and and the core band is vinnie calliota marcus miller and mike landau and uh very proud of that of that record it's randy's and mine's tunes about half and half maybe a little more skewed randy who's just He's singing, and he's one of the great songwriters. He's had hits with everybody, with George Benson, with Al, with uh, Ann Murray. Uh, he played piano with Mose Allison. Randy's a, an amazing musician, so we, we have a, a songwriting thing that's that's kind of effortless, and I'm real proud of, of that. Those songs, so that's been a real light in my creative life for the last seven years or so and that those those are the the songs that we just got tired of pitching songs to people and said randy said let's put it out you know let's put out this record so it's gotten it's it's actually released in japan under a separate deal he got a he got a a, a separate deal in japan because again based on on the personnel they they love randy and they love everybody i just mentioned you know it's it's tailor-made for japan so you know I'm on all kinds of stuff that's that's out in the last couple of years. Panic at the disco, that last record is a big horn section stuff. All the horns. Yeah, did. I mentioned yeah. my
1: son before, he's into that group. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They were they were really fun, by the way. Fun and uh, really good guys to be around. Um just there there's I'm doing movie stuff when certain people call for sessions and just I actually forget like when you when you ask me. And I'll, after we hang up, I'll I'll, re- I'll remember five or six things that are either just came out or coming out that I've, that I've played on. People send me stuff, you know, all the time to play on on their track. You know, a lot of stuff from Norway and Sweden. I've, there's a connection there. I got really great friends in France and, of course, UK. Um, and in fact, I use horn guys from the UK a lot now that Jerry doesn't play trumpet anymore because of his throat. there's a, there's a new guy named Tom Walsh, trumpet player that Jerry's kind of signed as he's the next sea wind horns guy. He's, he's taken it and is going to take it on, uh, Tom Walsh under horn house. I'm not on that, but they don't need me. Even though I play with them occasionally, you know, um, look for that. It's called horn house.
1: Is it, is it jazzy or what kind of
0: it's, it's it's funk jazz stuff with really funny lyrics but the horn stuff is really the is really the the key to it they are great singers on it too great and it's 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 really well done out of uk horn house highly recommend it's just out by the way this this week you can find it on spotify so
1: wow definitely check that out and uh Larry, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, yeah,
0: Scott, for
1: all the great music through the years
0: too, especially. Hey, thank you, and thanks for the work you're doing, man, for highlighting this this uh, little known stuff, and thanks for for sticking with me. You know, I I say no to a lot of podcasts out of hand just just because I've done quite a few, a lot of them on on Michael, a lot of them on on Quincy, and, and some on, but. But your, your particular take is is definitely uh, worthy of wider recognition. So of wide recognition. Sounds like you're doing good. So thank you, Scott. Pleasure. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it. And I'll let you know when it's going to air so you can share it if you like. And uh, Please do, and I will. I don't know if you get out and perform anymore, but if you do, do. I'd, I'd love to see you sometime. So.
0: I do occasionally. Not, not not as much as I used to. Uh, we have an Algero Tribute. Band that I think is going to be—that's the guys that were with Al the last twenty years of his life. That we made a record. By the way, that's a record I'm very proud of. It's called. It's Chris Walker, the bass player, who's singing his take on Al, and he's a magnificent singer, bass player, uh, musician. Chris Walker tribute to Al Giroux. Um We're in this love together. Is the record? And wow! If you can do if you can work. do
1: him justice vocally, that's something.
0: You should listen and, and see. He's not imitating, but he's learned at the feet of the master, and he can sing it. He can, he can get out. He's the best I've ever heard. Not imitating, but so Al derived. You can't sing Al stuff without sounding like Al if you're any good. And if if you're not good, you're going to sound awful <laughs> singing Al stuff because it's. Not for the faint of heart. There was only one Al. By the way, I didn't get to talk about Al enough. That was, that's the artist I walked, I, I worked with the most closely over forty years. Not constantly, but uh, like I said, the last twenty of his life. Those early records and those early tours in the eighties I did with him were uh, playing Spain every night, around Europe were just, you know, heaven for me because I get to play. Five minute solos, you know, on every tune and pick up the saxophone. Al was just couldn't be more encouraging. So great talking to you, Scott. Thanks again, man. You
1: as well. Take good care.
0: Okay. Bye. Song
1: for now. Bye.
0: You too. I hope you enjoyed this
1: episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also much gratitude to pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth & Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net buying everything is on the one the first guy to funk book at amazon shopping at the funky things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net and linking through FunkinStuff.net for all of your amazon purchases in addition if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results oriented professional marketing pr writing or editing consultation or production